Body. I'm now nice and loud. Is that too loud? There we are. Thanks, Tom. Uh, just a quick note before we begin. Um, this sermon will contain a word uh, that many may consider offensive. It is a word that in Australian vernacular is not particularly offensive, and indeed it is occasionally used as a term of endearment. However, this same word that I'm going to use is considered highly offensive uh, in other cultures. And I point this out, particularly uh, for the benefit of anyone here or listening online who may not be particularly familiar with Australian culture, so that it doesn't take you by surprise. However, I also will be making a small comment at the end of this sermon on the use of obscene speech in the Bible. Because obscene speech plays a small part in the text that we're looking at today. I think that's called a trigger warning that I've just given you. There you are. Well, let's make a start. Australia does not have an honour-shame culture. Um, Of course, many nations do have an honour-shame culture, but when we think of such cultures or societies, they may seem very strange to us even barbaric. When we think of honor-shame cultures, we might think of honor killings. Typically, when a father or a brother kills a woman in their household, even their own daughter or their own sister, in the name of the reputation of the family. And sadly, such killings are relatively common in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, And indeed, they occasionally happen in Muslim communities in Western nations, such as the United Kingdom. Mubin Arashu pleaded with his sister, Tazleen, to end her relationship with a Christian man because it brought shame on her family. When she refused, he shot her in the head. Raju told a reporter earlier this year, I had to do it. I had no choice. Most of his neighbors in Lahore, Pakistan, agreed. And he was widely praised for doing the right thing. Uh, Researchers at the University of Oklahoma have characterized honor-shame cultures as those that can be characterized by a deep concern for reputation and by a sense of being duty-bound to retaliate against anything perceived to be a slight or an insult. Professor uh, Ryan Brown of the University of Oklahoma has identified that actually the southern states of the United States of America, that is the Confederate states which lost the Civil War, southern in the U.S. being primarily a social and economic distinction, uh, a cultural distinction, not necessarily an indicator of where you'd find them on a map. The southern states, they have an honor-shame culture. Uh, Here in Australia, we do not have an honor-shame culture, and we never have had. The distance we've traveled from European honor-shame cultures and honor-shame values is perhaps most neatly captured by a quote from the 1984 TV miniseries, Bodyline, which, if you're as old as me, you may remember... It was a mini-series that dramatized the events of the 1932-1933 English Ashes cricket tour here in Australia. 
and body line tactics and bounces and all that stuff. And in one scene, immediately after a test match, an English cricketer who has been insulted by an Australian on, on the cricket pitch, uh, wherein the legitimacy of his parenthood was, was questioned in fury. He storms to the changing rooms afterwards to demand an apology. And he knocks on the door and one bloke answers the door and he hears his complaint and he turns to the other cricketers behind him who are in various states of undress and he loudly demands, Right, which one of you bastards called this bastard a bastard? And that single sentence is highly illustrative of many important aspects of our home culture. For a start, such a thing could never be said in an honor-shame culture. In his book, Honor Bound, Professor Brown argues that honor-shame cultures seem to develop wherever there is severe economic insecurity combined with a degree of lawlessness. And when those two conditions prevail, your reputation is a way to protect yourself when no one else will come to your aid. It's a way to protect yourself when no one else is coming to your aid. Positively, honor-shame cultures, such as we might find in the Middle East and as we find in southern USA, honor-shame cultures are typically extremely polite. Uh, And you have to be polite, and indeed, your manners have to be pretty sophisticated to ensure that you don't even accidentally offend your neighbor. Negatively, violent crime, argument-based homicides, and mental illness are much higher in honor-shame U.S. states than in non-honor-shame U.S. states. Uh, In a study of 36 American presidents, presidents from honor-shame states were twice as likely to use military force in international disputes than northern presidents. And when force was used, it tended to be exerted for twice as long if the president was a southerner. And the U.S. was twice as likely to win a conflict under a southern leader. And these these results uh, come from researchers at Yale University and MIT, not YouTube, uh, just so you know. Uh, The the results reflect the fact that to someone from an honor-shame culture, if you make a threat, then you have to follow through. Otherwise, your reputation will be damaged. Well, obviously, our story this morning comes direct from an honor-shame culture. David was viciously slandered and rejected by Nabal. And to any Middle Easterner, then or today, the insult that fell on David was absolutely intolerable. Nabal did and said unforgivable things from the perspective of an honor-shame culture. Now, David's request might sound a little bit strange to us. David and his 600 men have encamped themselves out in the wilderness of Paran, and it is sheep-shearing time. Nearby, there is an extremely wealthy landowner named Nabal. He is a Calebite. He is descended from Caleb, 
tribe of Judah. He is therefore, in fact, actually a close relative of David's. And we're given a measure of his wealth, a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. And this in a culture where otherwise an entire village might only own a hundred sheep. And even then that would take two or three full-time shepherds. So I guess this guy in, in, in current day terms, he'd be worth hundreds of millions of dollars and he would be the head of an organization that employed hundreds of staff, maybe even thousands. Now, as is regularly apparent in the Bible, the super wealthy were expected to share of their wealth and to provide for their communities in a variety of ways, from building programs to loans, from social welfare to disaster relief. And they were expected to regularly host community events such as a wedding feast or um, a religious festival. They were expected to regularly host community events such that hundreds and maybe even thousands of people were fed at their expense. Shearing time in Palestine was and is a traditional time of feasting and celebration because the wool's worth a lot of money and you sell it and there's a spike in cash flow. Good time to have a party. David's request that Nabal provide for his, David's own men's celebrations, whatever he might find, in other words, whatever in kindness he feels able to give them, uh, that request is totally appropriate in his culture. In an honor-shame culture, the exchange of gifts creates relationship. Friends make gifts and gifts make friends in an honor-shame culture. And the request was made, we noticed that the request was made with all of the excessive politeness of an honor-shame culture. Men go in Dave's, uh, David's name. In other words, they go as David's authorized representatives, as his ambassadors. And the words that David gives them to repeat are a blessing upon Nabal and his household. A blessing that actually includes the word peace four times. Peace be with you. Long life and peace to you, peace to your household, and peace to all that pertains to you. Now actually, for us as Westerners, we're not really worried about peace, we're worried about plagues. We have an excessive interest in each other's health. And so we say things like, how are you? And are you well? And so in your pew Bible, you'll notice that there's no mention of peace, it's been translated as good health. A Western blessing is, we're worried about your health. Good health! But in the Hebrew, the blessing is all about peace because Middle Easterners were and are excessively worried about being killed by somebody else. And so the blessing is peace four times. Peace be with you. Peace and long life. Peace be with you four times. And at the end of the story, of course, this blessing returns to David because Nabal is not a man of peace. Um, David's polite request to Nabal uh, that he generously provide for David's party just as he's providing for his own party that culturally could stand on its own two legs however just to make the request completely unrefusable he adds something now David and his men have been living alongside Nabal's flocks and his shepherds and not only have they not helped themselves to his sheep and goats and culturally speaking people would have understood if he had 
Not only had they not helped themselves to his stuff, actually they had commissioned themselves as volunteer bodyguards protecting Nabal's assets even though Nabal hadn't asked him to. Protecting his flocks and his men from others who might have helped themselves to his stuff. And actually that's no small thing. Nabal has done, sorry, David has done Nabal a significant good turn, a solid act of meaningful kindness. And we, as we journey through David's life, we see here that we remember that actually when he was a young guy, he was a faithful shepherd, a faithful looker after of sheep. Now we see that he's a faithful shepherd of shepherds, a caring, a caring leader of of, of, of shepherds, of, of men. And, and again we see David's fitness for leadership. But in response to this excessively polite, entirely reasonable and entirely justified request, Nabal refuses. Now, we notice that Nabal could have refused politely, couldn't he? I mean, perhaps he, w- he could have been a timid, timid, a timid man and afraid of Saul, and perhaps he wanted to stay out of the politics of this situation, and he could have made a lame excuse and begged to be forgiven for being unable at this time to help. But he refuses and sends David's young men, uh, the Hebrew suggests teenage boys, back to David with a blistering insult. Verse 20. Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Obviously, Nabal knows exactly who he is and all his history. The two questions obviously are rhetorical. Nabal himself gives the interpretation. David is an utter nobody. Worse, he's a runaway slave. Should I reward insignificant nobodies who rebel against their masters? F off is the referent. That's what he is saying. And it is also the register. That is to say, the degree of offensiveness. Now, in this series of sermons, we've followed David since he was a teenage boy, the youngest of eight sons, a shepherd boy. Um, Initially of little account, even to his own family, and now on the run from an irrational tyrant who has a death wish for him, he has in every story served God, king, family, faithfully and wholeheartedly in every situation. How this put down must have stung him. And David is, as we, as we heard, he's beside himself with rage. He's furious. He immediately calls his men to battle and he promises to kill every male in Nabal's household. And that could, of course, be several hundred men, boys and babies, sons, grandsons, nephews, servants, slaves, servant boys. And David himself resorts to offensive language. Our translators have glossed over it, but the phrase translated males in verse 22 and again in verse 34 is actually a vulgar Hebrew phrase meaning everyone who urinates against the wall. As the old King James Bible puts it, any that pitheth against the wall. Enter Abigail. We were told about her at the start. A woman of understanding and of beautiful form. 
She sees the situation and she knows just what to do. She is wise. Now, wisdom in Hebrew thought is knowing what to do and doing it. Abigail knows what to do and she does it. And as the story unfolds, we see her wisdom in the following actions. Firstly, she reverses her husband's decision, smoothing over the question of David's request being denied. She hurriedly prepares and packs generous amounts of exactly the kinds of festive foods that David was originally requesting. So she goes behind her husband's back and she reverses her husband's decision. Perhaps her culture expected her to slavishly submit to her husband's decision, but now hundreds of lives depend upon her not doing that, and she was so right to not do that. She understands the times and knows what must be done. Secondly, Abigail does all that is needed in an honor-shame culture, and she does it right. When Abigail and David meet, she is excessively polite, as demanded in an honor-shame culture, bowing down, face to the ground, falling at his feet. And Abigail smooths over the question of honor and reputation. And she does this by destroying her husband's reputation in order to restore David's reputation. My husband is well-named. His name means stupid, and everything he does is stupid, so please take no notice of his insult. It was stupid. By the way, we don't know how, how or when Nabal got his name, but it does mean fool. And fool is a very serious insult in Hebrew, and quite an offensive word. A fool in Hebrew thought, is somebody who doesn't know what to do and or can't do it. Mr. Stupid, Sir Idiot, or Captain Imbecile would be names that have the same referent or meaning and the same register or degree of offensiveness in contemporary English. Perhaps her culture expected her to respect her husband. But now hundreds of lives depend upon her not doing that, and she was so right to not do that. Thirdly, she asks for forgiveness, verse 28, on behalf of her husband. To ask for forgiveness is to ask for grace. She is wise enough to acknowledge that even in providing food, even in sledging her own husband, these things can't or may not completely atone for all of Nabal's offense. And there is a need for grace. The need for David to simply lay down his legal rights to repayment in kind and to give the whole thing into God's hands. And lastly, there is something else that she does, and it's profoundly wonderful. Now, in order to understand what Abigail does... We need to remember what happened last week. Uh, if you were with us, you may remember that David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he declined that opportunity. Why didn't he kill Saul when he had the chance? Well, we saw that there were lots of reasons. David knew he wasn't a slave to circumstances. No Christian can ever say, I had no choice. David also knew that he must forgive Saul. And on the basis of that, David knew 
that it is imperative that the servant of the Lord trusts God to defend his cause. Self-defense is not an option to the one who trusts God. It is God's job to defend our cause as we defend his. Abigail's ministry here is one of simply reminding David of a truth that only one chapter ago he knew and had acted upon. But now he's forgotten. In a critical moment of temptation, he's forgotten not to defend his own cause. Abigail reminds him, verses 30 and 31, When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And in verses 32 and following, David replies, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Now, the verb translated avenged is simply the Hebrew verb to save. The translators have translated it avenged because in this context, the question is indeed about one of vengeance in the face of an insult. But with that translation, it might stop us from seeing perhaps that they're talking about salvation. Abigail's quick action has stalled David's attempt to save himself. And that's what David suddenly sees and is grateful for. Because either Jesus Christ is your saviour, or you yourself are your saviour. You can't have it both ways. To try and save ourselves is to dispense with God. Jesus gave explanations to those who wanted explanations and he judged those who judged him and he questioned those who questioned him. But in front of his accusers, he was silent. And we are called to walk in his footsteps. When David's personal honor and reputation was at stake, he snapped. Committing himself to violently pursuing his own reputation. He started He started behaving just like Saul, didn't he? Go back to chapter 22 if you want to know what Saul's like. He went through with it and killed everybody. David, uh, in this moment of weakness, he snaps and he starts behaving like Saul. And who is he copying? He's copying Nabal, who is repaid good with evil. David decides to repay evil with evil. He started to copy Nabal. This is actually, folks, what we do whenever we retaliate in same kind. Um, What we do is we imitate the person who has offended us. It's a great compliment. It's the highest compliment you can pay. Imitation is the sincerest form of worship. Um, if, If I'm driving along and there's a road rage incident and somebody hurls abuse at me, if I hurl abuse back at them, I've paid them the highest compliment I can by imitating them, by conforming myself to their image and likeness. But Abigail, providentially sent by God, saved David from saving himself. 
And so David forgave. And in forgiving, he trusted God to defend his cause. He trusted the Lord to save him. And in forgiving, David copied God in whose image and likeness he'd been created. Well, Abigail returns home. Uh, She has the wisdom not to tell her husband what she's done whilst he's drunk. And he is indeed exceedingly drunk and he's completely out of control. Um, A wild party as though he was a king. Verse 37, we read that Abigail told Nabal all about it the next morning when, quote, he was sober, unquote. Uh, Those words translate the literal phrase, when the wine was coming out of him, unquote. That phrase obviously can be understood in a variety of ways, such as, as he was sobering up. But it might also mean, and I think it probably means, as he was vomiting. And that would make a lot of sense in the context, given that she has decided to tell him at daybreak and that his drunkenness the night before was extreme. We'll resist the temptation to break for ice cream. Some of us won't resist the temptation for break for ice cream. Abigail's life was in jeopardy. She'd gone behind her husband's back, reversed his decision, publicly destroyed his reputation, and made a laughing stock of him in front of the entire community. I think she did well to break the news to him while he was on his knees, retching and vomiting, unable to get to his feet or take two steps away from the toilet. Good idea, Abigail. And we read that the news was so profoundly shocking to him in that state that he had a massive heart attack, or more likely a massive stroke. And after 10 days of being in a coma, he died. Uh, In verse 39, uh, uh, David hears about Nabal's death and he praises God. And we need to be careful. David isn't gloating. He isn't taking pleasure in Nabal's suffering and death, but he is rejoicing in the fact that both he and Abigail trusted God and God came to their rescue. Of course, in this situation, which was of Nabal's own doing, could not be resolved without either Nabal dying, or on the one hand, or Abigail and David and David's men dying. If if Nabal had recovered, they would have all lost their lives. God came to their rescue and established justice in the world because there were people waiting and trusting for him to establish justice in the world. David sees, yes, there is justice in the world. Praise be to God. God, Our God always vindicates the one who trusts in him. Always vindicates the one who trusts in him and because of that does things his way and waits for his salvation. The, the episode ends with David rescuing Abigail. Um, we can understand that actually Abigail was a childless widow now, um, and her life in a real sense is now in jeopardy. Um, uh, sh- uh, childless widows were kind of official, they were statusless. Um, David now comes to her rescue, rescuing her from being a childless widow, taking her to be uh, his wife. The whole story is written from the perspective of an honor-shame culture. 
Indeed, the entire Bible, both Old and New Testaments, were written in the context of honor-shame cultures, either ancient Near Eastern or Greco-Roman versions of honor-shame. What, what I want us to see here today is that whilst this story assumes the context of an honor-shame culture, it's actually sowing the seeds of its destruction. David and Abigail live in the context of an honor-shame culture, but their behavior undermines its basic premises. And Jesus often openly took aim at honor-shame culture and tore it down because the culture of the kingdom of God is not honor-shame, but grace-truth. Grace, forgiveness, acceptance, belonging. Does nobody condemn you? Neither, neither then do I condemn you. Go in peace. Truth. Truth. More important than shame. More important than reputation. More important than losing face. More important than social standing. Go. Leave your life of sin. Grace and truth. That's what's going on here culturally. What's going on here spiritually? Well, in order to grasp the spiritual significance of what's happened here, we just need to remember that David is God's Messiah. He's anointed one. He's been anointed with oil. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He is the Christ. And God has made these promises to David through a prophet, the prophet Samuel. And these promises have become widely known. We saw in an earlier episode how even the Philistines have heard the good news, the gospel of David, and they're believing it, although not in a saving way. So David is not a nobody who has run away from his master. He's the Messiah. And when we remember this, we see that Nabal, in rejecting and insulting David, was actually deliberately rejecting and insulting God's word through the prophet Samuel. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that was David's prayer in response to this episode. Nabal was accepting Saul's word about David, and Nabal died. Abigail, on the other hand, tells David, and in telling David, she tells us that she wholeheartedly believes the words of the prophet about David. Verse 30, the Lord will fulfill his promises and will make David king. Uh, by the way, the name Abigail uh, means my father's joy, and I think uh, she too, uh, like her husband Nabal, is very well named. Because I'm sure that our Father in Heaven was and continues to be filled with joy uh, over her faith response to his word, filled with joy over her trust in him at a critical moment and her decisive action so as to prevent David from spoiling the reputation of his Messiah. Abigail believes God's word about the Messiah, and she is saved. David is the type. Jesus is the anti-type. David is typical. What is David, David typical of? He's typical of Messiahs. In order that we might recognize Jesus, who is the one in whom all of our expectations are fulfilled. Jesus, the true king of Israel, the true savior of all God's people. If you believe what the prophets and the apostles have said about Jesus, you can be sure that Jesus will save you too. Just as Jesus saved David and Abigail.
Um, that now concludes what I'd like to teach on today from this passage. But before I close, as promised, just a final word on the use of coarse or offensive language. Um, today I have used coarse language and offensive language in this sermon. Just as this Bible passage contains coarse and offensive language, just as also Jesus used obscene words, such as when, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he used a word that was so obscene that anyone using it in anger would find themselves answering to the Sanhedrin. Uh, to any young people present, uh, I'd just like to say that my use of coarse language here today doesn't give you the freedom to use coarse language at home or at school. If your parents or teachers have ruled out certain words for you, the Lord expects you to obey them. To the adults present, I'd say the biblical use of coarse language should remind us that it is occasionally appropriate to use it when, in context, it is necessary to the point being made. We shouldn't be so prudish in our piety that we are easily offended, nor are we foul mouths. We do have a choice. Peace be with you.